Let us pray together. Spirit of living God, fall fresh now on these your children. And on this your servant. Amen. Poor, blind, and naked is how Jesus describes the church at Laodicea. You see, Jesus came to his own and his own would not accept him. He was thought of and was a rabbi and a teacher and preacher. His message, I and the God you serve are one. I am David's heir. I am the son of God. Israel, God's church, his chosen people could not accept Jesus' message. But his followers, spiritually thirsty souls, drank from Jesus' well and a movement began. Paul met the risen Christ on a road to destruction. His encounter ignited a fire in Paul that led to the organized Christian church. At this time, the heads of the Christian church had combined most of Roman culture into the church. When the Romans conquered a people, they would allow them to bring their culture and even their religion into their culture as long as it meshed with what the Roman culture dictated. John was thought to be one who continued to preach truth to the church leaders, to come back to the ways of Christ. Ultimately, he was in prison on the Isle of Patmos for speaking truth to power. And the book opens with John watching the festivities of what is called the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day was not what we think of as the Lord's Day. We think of Sunday as the Lord's Day, a day to worship the God whom we serve. But during John's time, the emperor was called Lord. So this would have been a day when the people, including church leaders, were celebrating Lord Caesar's day. You see, it was mandated on a certain day each year. All Roman citizens had to go to a local city shrine, toss some incense on an official altar, and declare Caesar is Lord. This became known as the Lord's day. John says, I was in the spirit, though, on the Lord's day. He was not worshiping Caesar. He was in tune with the God of the universe. And Jesus spoke to John, and John wrote. John penned the letters from Jesus Christ to the seven churches while he was in prison on an island. Our text is a letter that's written to a church at Laodicea. When you study the letters of the seven churches, you notice one glaring fact in their structure. The church at Laodicea is the only one that does not receive any praise. Christ praises the church at Ephesus for its hard work and perseverance. Christ praises the church at Smyrna for its endurance and persecution and poverty. Christ praises the church at Pergamon for remaining true 
to its faith. Christ praises the church at Thyatira for its deeds of love and faith and service and improving over time. Christ praises the church at Sardis for its deeds and for its reputation of being alive. Christ praises the church at Philadelphia for its deeds and patience and for refusing to deny his name. And while it's true that five of the seven churches were then reprimanded and scolded for some great failure that they didn't realize that they were doing for the kingdom. The last church, the church at Laodicea, is the only one that praise is shockingly absent. Christ does not have a single kind word for this lukewarm church. His blistering letter to Laodicea begins with a scolding. It's painful to think that Christ has nothing nice to say about a church when all he can say is shame on you. The only kindness expressed in this letter to Laodicea is the kindness of giving this church a chance to get its act together and repent. What were their sins? How could a whole church fail so miserably and completely in its duty to Jesus? Man, we need to know so we can avoid that same dilemma. We don't want to stand before Christ on judgment day and hear nothing but rebuke. If we do, the words that might follow would pierce our hearts. Depart from me. I know you not. Christ describes the poor Laodicean church as lukewarm, wretched, miserable. They were utterly abhorrent, repulsive to him because they were lukewarm and therefore useless. They were having church, but they were not living the church. They were just going through the rituals of tradition taught to them by the apostles. Their messenger or pastor, probably Pastor Agrippus, was most likely still living at the time of this letter's delivery. Ouch! It was a scathing rebuke of spiritual leadership, though it's certain there was enough blame to go around for everybody. Why did Jesus use the term lukewarm? We need to understand the ancient custom to understand what he is saying. In religious feasts and sacrifices, the people of the ancient world customarily drank was either hot or cold for sanitary purposes. They never drank anything lukewarm except in Laodicea where water had to be piped from hyperbolis. By the time it got to Laodicea, the water was lukewarm. Christ was comparing a familiar reality, warm water, with their lukewarm faith. By the time water got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. By the time the message of salvation got to Laodicea, it got lukewarm receptions. Christ was exposing the truth that Laodicea was, had received him with a lukewarm embrace. 
He describes Laodicea's lukewarm faith in three ways. They were poor, blind, and naked. Let's explore these three terms, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus says they are poor. And he's not talking about financially poor. They had plenty, plenty of wealth. This city was the hub of the banking industry, and it was overflowing with material wealth. They were not materially poor. The indictment was not against their financial wealth, but against their spiritual poverty. Surely the church, with all of its monetary wealth, thought it was strong. But according to God, the Laodicean church was weak, spiritually weak. Brothers and sisters, we can identify with this all too easily in the 21st century. 21st century Christianity is producing grand edifices, large mega churches with cathedrals with stone and glass buildings, people fighting over their building. But beautiful buildings don't impress God. Form and fashion don't excite God. Only what we do for Christ will last. Spiritual strength has nothing to do with money and materialism. The poorest congregation can provide the richest of service. A church with a leaking roof can still provide shelter from life's stormy blasts. A church with peeling paint can still peel away the layers of hardness on one's heart. A church with a crumbling parking lot can still crumble the lives that are slipping away from Christ. Pretty does not define purpose. We care about maintaining our facility. And our staff, including Larry, does a fantastic job. But it is his ministry, not beauty for beauty's sake. We care because it is a place where Isaiah said to provide for those who mourn in Zion to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of faint spirit, they will be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord is to display his glory. Brothers and sisters, we are planted here because we were planted by the Lord. If we are spiritually depleted, Jesus says the solution is to buy refined gold. Refined gold. It's no ordinary gold. It is a gold that has all of its impurities removed. It is a metaphor that symbolizes the pure glory of God. God's glory alone can make people truly rich. All else is tainted. The Laodicean has to trade their financial wealth for spiritual riches that can only come from Jesus. Second, Christ tells the Laodicean church they are blind. Of course, Jesus is not talking about physical blindness. Physical blindness cannot separate a person from Christ. In fact, some blind Christians, as I've read about and I know, they say that blindness helps them to keep their Christian focus. Instead, Christ is indicting the Laodiceans for their blindness to sound understanding and the exercise of good judgment. The Laodiceans had become unaware, unknowing 
unobservant, uncomprehending, and unmindful of the things of God. They were too blind to notice that they had strayed or drifted off into their own direction doing their own thing that had nothing to do with Jesus. One can only imagine what sins they had become blind to. Maybe greed, maybe lust, maybe confusion, maybe fear, maybe pretense, maybe disgrace, maybe apathy toward their brothers and sisters. But Jesus, our Christ, offered a remedy for their blindness, and he used another familiar analogy to illuminate it. There was a medical school in Laodicea at the temple of Ascospolis, which offered a special salve to heal common eye trouble suffered by Middle Easterners. So Jesus charged the Laodiceans to anoint their eyes with salve so that they could improve their spiritual eyesight. How do you know when a church has become blind? A blind church tolerates the darkness when it should be walking in the light. A blind church makes excuses for defeat when it should be celebrating victory after victory. A blind church practices playing when it should be practicing praying. A blind church limps along when it should be marching, marching up to Zion. And the worst part is a blind church never notice that it's blind. It never notices that its duties have become harder, its heartaches heavier, its relationships weaker, its fear deeper, its compliments feebler, and its hopes dimmer. In a world filled with Hades, we need a church with its eyes on heaven. In a world that's out of tune, Friends, we need a church filled with harmony. In a world that has gone sour, we need a church with the sweet message of hope. In a world at its worst, we need a church at its best. Third, Christ tells the church at the Laodiceans that they are naked. In other words, the sin of their carnality was exposed. They allowed their fleshly attitudes to dominate their lifestyles. They were more concerned about their stuff than the things of God. They allowed their human nature to surface and become dominant, and they became focused on the physical. Sadly, that's all too familiar. Too many Christians find a straight and narrow path too confining for them. Instead, they prefer a carnal lifestyle that excuses their disobedience to the things of God and the life that God has called us to live. And when they do, it affects the church. It's not their clothing that gives them away. It's their unrighteousness and their inability to rely on Christ. The only solution, Jesus said, is to buy yourself white raiments to cover the shame of the ruined righteousness. 
Christ is telling us to shed our clothing and he's not telling us to shed our clothing and put on white garments. He's not telling us to sit in the worship center or at home dressed in white, white ties and white hats and white gloves and white shoes. He's telling us that the only way to cover our unrighteousness is to clothe ourselves in his pure righteousness. We, like the Laodiceans, need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb so we can put on our new robe and tell the story of Christ and Christ's glory. The Laodiceans were wretched and miserable. They didn't even know they were. The word miserable is translated as pitiful. They were living a life that was sadly deficient of where God wanted them to be. But the word wretch has even more revealing in their condition. In the New Testament, the word wretch is used to describe a nation that has been destituted from war. And what Jesus is saying is that while they may have been quite wealthy, They were losing the spiritual war against Satan and their sin nature. They had failed to understand that we are crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I, but the Christ who lives in me. And the life we now live in the flesh, we now live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. The Laodiceans were poor, blind, and naked, and calling themselves the church. They were apathetic, indifferent. They could care less about spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today's church dare not follow in their footsteps. We are called to preach and teach and live a life that points people to Christ. To make disciples out of believers, help those who are lonely and sick to know that they are not alone. We cannot afford to be poor, blind, and naked. The need for richness of God's glory, a clear vision of our salvation, and Christ's robe of righteousness, only then, can we offer the world a righteous remedy for their ruined nature? A heavenly hope for the hopeless. A genuine grace for the guilty. A priceless pardon for the disinherited. A free forgiveness for the fugitive. A royal redemption for restlessness. A triumph touch for the troubled a reliable relief for the rejected, a caring compassion for the condemned, a blissful blessing for the burden, and a sure salvation for all of us who believe in Jesus Christ. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. One of the tenderest lines in Revelation, those whom I love, the Lord says, disciplines because they are God's children. Note that despite the shameful condition that these church find themselves in, 
God still considered them a part of God's family. And Christ tries everything he can to get them to come back to the ways of God. The Greek word for love used here is philio. In other references, it's agapo. But here it's God loves you like children. Here I am. I stand at the door. I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. The tense indicates a continual knocking. To anyone indicates, indicates a universal but individual appeal. An individual needs to hear Christ knocking, that is, his voice, and then open the door of their hearts to let Christ come in. The meal indicates fellowship with Christ and anticipates the heavenly banquet to come. Jesus said that whoever hears his voice and believes God has eternal life will not be condemned. They have crossed over from death to life. The one who belongs to God hears what God says. The last verse of this is the key of the whole book. Jesus came, overcame as the lamb slain by the world. He overcame death on a cross, and he gives himself as an example of one who overcomes. He obtained victory by being obedient even obedient unto death. And now is exalted as the lamb of the tribe of Judah. Revelation demonstrates that the same obedience to death is required of all of us. Those who suffer with Jesus will reign with Jesus. Laodicea was poor, lunic, fancy riches, but they refuse to humble themselves. Those who humble themselves overcome. Those who put pride aside can sit at the table with the Lord and sit with the Lord in glory. He who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. I say, speak, Jesus. We are listening because when Jesus speaks, illnesses can be healed. When Jesus speaks, doctors may have to change their diagnosis. When Jesus speaks, opinions have to change. When Jesus speaks, churches become bold and dare to tell the world that there is hope in Jesus Christ. When Jesus speaks, enemies become our footstool and have to get a new strategy to overcome what God has built. When Jesus speaks, gravity has the goal. When Jesus speaks, the church becomes a marching army that says, for God we live and for God we die. The world belongs to our Father and no satanic power can have what God has put in place. Our critics become confused. Our haters cannot hurt us. Our enemies will have to behave. We may stand alone in pain, but receive the praise. 
Our test becomes testimony. Our lack becomes excess. Speak, Jesus. That's all we are waiting to hear. Speak, Jesus, for your servants are listening, listening to the wind words of the Spirit. God, we thank you that you continue to speak to us. You speak to us when we are weary and tired. You speak to us when we are lonely and lost. You speak to us when we are hurting and confused. You speak to us when we feel like nobody understands us. We ask, oh God, that your spirit will continue to allow us to listen for your still small voice that's loose in the world today. In the name of the one who we call the Lamb of God, 